As we get started, how many of you have done some kind of uh, looking into your family history, like ancestry type uh, research of some kind? There's a bunch of online sites, right? You can do this on now, uh, or some personal digging around in the stories of your past and your family. Well, this uh, summer, or this spring rather, my parents did that. They went to Ireland, and they wanted to do some digging into my dad's side of the family. And the story had been told to them by my dad's dad, my grandfather, uh, about my great-great-grandparents. And the story was that my great-great-grandpa Sumner uh, was English, and yet work in his part of the UK was uh, not abundant, and so he moved to Ireland, and he was a mine manager, and so he went to work in Ireland for this family that had a mining operation, and wouldn't you know it, he fell in love with the owner's daughter. And so this was a little bit scandalous because not only were they English and Irish and that just was not going to happen in terms of a marriage relationship, but also class difference was going to be a big thing. From being a part of a land-owning family to being part of a working family was a big deal. And so my grandfather would tell us this story growing up about how great-grandpa Sumner, great-great-grandpa Sumner, had, you know, he'd really just put himself out there. He'd worked hard and he had made a name for himself and then he had successfully married uh, this, this woman. And you can see, uh, this is a picture of the church that uh, they actually got married in that my parents went and looked at uh, this spring. And so he would tell these kinds of stories and then he'd talk about how, you know, they had left Ireland and some of their family was still buried there in the Beamish family crypt uh, there. And then they had moved to Canada. And in Canada... They had uh, moved west across until they landed in Duff, Saskatchewan, the booming metropolis of Duff, Saskatchewan, where they had uh, helped to build the grain elevator in Duff, Saskatchewan. And so this became part of another one of my grandfather's stories that he would tell us of. They had come with nothing, and they had moved to Duff, Saskatchewan, and by the hard work that they had invested in this, then they built the grain elevator, and then they were able to make enough money and keep moving west. They built another grain elevator, and so on and so forth, until they came to the west coast. And these were the origin stories that my grandfather uh, would tell me about our family. And as he was telling them, there was always a little motto that he would kind of insert in there. And he would say, you know, it all worked out in the end because, as we know, God helps those who help themselves. And he would repeat this growing up so frequently that I genuinely thought it was from the New Testament because he would just add it in to every story that he would tell. And it was kind of like the moral or the takeaway or the lesson from all of these family origin stories. The lesson you were supposed to learn in life was that only idiots or lazy losers loafed around waiting for divine help and intervention. What your job was to do was to get it moving in some way and then God would intervene and assist you if you were a scrappy hard worker. So God rewarded in my grandfather's mind that kind of attitude and action and thus the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. But there's only one little problem with my grandpa's phrase. While there are certainly elements of truth to it, 
its origin is not actually in the Bible. To be very straight up, the Bible doesn't say that in as many words. Well, here at Jericho, we're in a spring teaching series, and we're exploring phrases that sound like they have their roots in the Scriptures, but they come from different places, and they're actually not in the Bible. And so, these include things like obedience always leads to blessing. We talked two weeks ago about that. Does God require or obligated to bless you if you follow in obedience to something you feel like God's asking you to do? Then last weekend, Pastor Wally talked about, does God ever give us more than we can handle? And the text is actually about temptation, not about our capacity to withstand what comes at us in life. Today, we're going to talk about God helps those who help themselves. Next week, my friend Jay uh, from Highland Church in Abbotsford is here. He's going to preach on the text, Don't Judge Others. And then David McFarland. David and Denise are actually right now in Uganda on a short-term team uh, serving with Pacific Academy. And so when they come back, uh, if David's not too jet-lagged, he's going to preach on the myth of a Christian nation because he's one of our elders and he teaches history and he's going to help us take a stand against baptized nationalism. So, today's question though is, does God help those who help themselves? Is that a legitimate perspective to bring to the table? It sounds good in some ways, but you remember our series t-shirt, the official series t-shirt, I never said that, says Jesus. Um, But let's look at a little bit of this, because we have to pull it apart and figure out. It sounds biblical. It sounds like it almost could be a proverb, but there's actually several places that we could point to for the origin story of this phrase. The very first time that something like this gets written down that we know of in history is in ancient Greece. And you might be familiar with Aesop. Uh, Aesop and his fables wrote a lot of uh, sort of morality tales in the ancient world. And one of the short stories is about a wagoneer. And the wagoneer gets stuck at some point. And so Aesop's fable goes, a wagoneer was once driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. At last, he came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway down into the mire. And the more the horses pulled, the deeper sank the wheels. So the wagoneer threw down his whip, knelt down, and prayed to Hercules the strong, and prayed this, O Hercules, help me in this hour of my distress, quoth he. But Hercules appeared to him and said, Tut, man, don't sprawl there. Get up, put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. So in other words, this guy prays to the gods. Hercules comes to him and says, man, stop praying to me, dude. Get, put, your, put, put your back into it a little bit more. Come on, I'll give you a hand, but you gotta be doing something. Get up, out of the muck there. The god help those who help themselves. Uh, The phrase makes other appearances in other places and forms of literature. It appears in the Quran. In one of the books there, it reads, uh, Allah will not change the conditions of a population until they change what is in themselves. So this is again following along the same line as Aesop. You need to get your own attitude and behavior together And then, God will assist you. So the principle is basically the same as my grandfather's motto. 
If you're going to expect divine help, like get the ball rolling a little bit. And then we'll see what happens. And this notion actually gets further embraced and embedded actually quite deeply into our narrative here in North America through the American religious experience and American history. The notion of being a self-made person, like working hard and being a master of your own destiny is built right into the fabric of the American experiment. Uh, indeed, in 1757, Benjamin Franklin writes uh, a little treatise called Poor Richard's Almanac. And the quote appears there almost as if it's pulled directly from the wisdom literature tradition of the Old Testament. Franklin writes, let us hearken to good advice and something may be done for us. For God helps them that help themselves. And it has, it has a ring of, as Stephen Colbert would say, truthiness to it, doesn't it? And so I want us to remind ourselves that it can be very easy to fall into a trap of simplistic or binary thinking and the answer to the question, does God help those who help themselves, just simply say, yes, he does, or no, God doesn't. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. Because there is a notion that simply sitting around doing nothing, praying all the time for God to do something, isn't usually a recipe for divine assistance. God responds in some ways to those who reach out to and seek Him, those who ask, who seek who invite, who knock. So while we can't necessarily make a hard and fast rule that God only or always helps those who are willing to help themselves, we can actually trace through the Bible some of the characteristics of people whom God does seem to help or respond to. Pastor Wally actually started us uh, down this line of thinking last weekend in his very helpful message. And he reminded us that one of the primary themes of Scripture is that self-reliance needs to die. That you and I were not created to just handle everything in life on our own. So Proverbs 28 verse 26 puts it this way, and it's one of many places in the Bible where this kind of thinking uh, is isolated. And Proverbs 28 says, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Those who trust in themselves are foolish. So just a strict self-reliance without including God in the equation in any way is not a recipe for God's assistance and help. But we do see here the first of three characteristics of people whom God does help. So who does God help? And we'll define help a little bit later on. The Bible is clear that those who walk in humility and who walk in wisdom, that God responds to those two characteristics. God opposes the proud, the Scripture says, but gives grace to those who are humble. Blessed are the meek, for they will 
inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will see God. God will demonstrate Himself to them. In other words, God helps those, if we want to use that language, who are willing to say they need help and who are also willing to, in humility, ask for the wisdom that they lack. Think about James chapter 1 where the author says, do any of you lack wisdom? Do you need it? Well, God can give it generously to you if you ask with faith and also you come without a sense of doubt. And so the first characteristic of people whom God helps is they just shed this illusion of self-sufficiency and they're willing to actually say, God, I need you. God, help me very simple, but actually very profound prayers to pray because they acknowledge our lack, our need, that there's something that we have or that we desire that we currently cannot get to on our own strength and resources. And God responds to that. Doesn't always give it to us exactly as we would picture, but God is responsive to those who walk in humility and wisdom. Second category of people whom God consistently throughout the Scriptures declares that He is aligned with and that He does help. In the book of Isaiah, this is captured beautifully for us, and the prophet says, but you, O God, you are a tower of refuge to the poor, a tower of refuge to the needy in distress. You are a refuge from the storm and a shelter from the heat. So who does God help? Well, first, God helps those who walk in humility and wisdom. Secondly, God helps those who are poor and who are oppressed. The Bible consistently reminds us that God's heart is for the outsider. God's heart is for the downtrodden. Those who are orphaned, those who are widows, the ones who have no one to provide or take care of them. And we'll talk again in a few moments about what does God's help look like because, again, for the poor and for the oppressed, it's not always what they might picture or imagine. But we do know that consistently God aligns Himself. God has a heart for those who are oppressed and who are in challenging situations. And this means that when you and I step into that place of advocacy for or generosity toward people who are poor and oppressed, we are aligning ourselves with God's heart and with God's vision for justice and for right relationships in the world. When we are giving to people who are poor in need, when we're giving to causes, to agencies, we're aligning ourselves with the activity of the Almighty. And that's why at Jericho, mission is an important aspect of what we do individually and together. It's why we do work globally in places like Guatemala. Every year, we work to raise a whole ton of money. It's usually over $35,000 every year that goes to help families and people who are in need in a place like Guatemala. Because God's heart is aligned with and He cares about and knows the name and the situation of each of those families 
and people who are in need. It's why we're involved in a place like Tanzania, working for justice, working to speak out against attacks and killings of people with albinism. Because one of the ways in which God helps those who are poor and oppressed is He calls God's people around the world to step into those places and to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with Him and to do the work of justice and advocacy and stand against the things that are evil and wrong. God calls His people to generously meet needs as an expression of His heart and His love. And just to tell a little story about this from Jericho's scenario, just this last week, a person at Jericho came up to me and they said, hey, you remember the story that you and Meg told of that woman who is a part of the mama's group? Uh, her name is Zuena. And you talked a little bit uh, about her a couple of weeks ago when you spoke about the work in Tanzania on the long weekend. And you mentioned that her diabetes medication doubled in price this last year. W what's that cost? And so we emailed and found out. And then this person said, that's like a tenth of what my medicine cost me in a, in a calendar year. Like that is super cheap. Here's a check. I'm just going to cover the full costs for that for her. And see, friends, that's a, an example of our core value here at Jericho of generous living in action. No big fanfare, no big public appeal, just simply saying, God, my finances are available to you. And when you put a need in my path and you stir in my heart that I can meet it, I'm going to say yes. And the cool part about this is the timing of that gift could not have been more God-orchestrated because Zuena had just received word that her father had died. And so she had made a commitment to travel and to be a part of her family's experience of laying her father to rest. And it was quite expensive and a long way for her to go, but she felt that she should do it. And so she, without any knowledge of any of this, made this financial commitment to her family and to help with her father's burial costs. And then on the other side of the world, God's stirring somebody's heart here at Jericho just through an offhanded comment that we made about Zuena and her need for medicine to meet those needs in her life. And someone at Jericho whom she's never met made a real, met a real need that'll make a massive difference in her life. Like, how cool is that? God orchestrating that kind of care for this woman as she cares for her family. So not only does God help those who are poor and who oppress, but also the Scripture gives us indication that God helps those who help those who are poor. That God actually loves to see generosity released towards people who are poor. And then very often God responds to the generosity with a provision or with joy or any other number of things that He desires to do in the person's life as they're generous with their resources. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at the third category of people whom God helps. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about giving to the needy. He's teaching about money. He's teaching about possessions. And in verse 25, we begin to read about this third category of people whom God helps helps. Matthew 6, verse 25. 
says this in the New Living Translation. This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? And the obvious answer is no. Then why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't work, they don't make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers, they're here today, they're thrown into the fire tomorrow, He will certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? Verse 31, so don't worry about these things, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? These are the things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. And so what are you and I to do? We're to seek the kingdom of God above all else or seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously, and He will give you everything that you need. So we see here the third category of people whom God helps, God is responsive toward, and that is those who seek the kingdom of God above all else, and those who live righteously or live in a moral alignment with the way in which God has called to live. And God's responsive to that. He says He'll give you everything that you need. Now, we have to ask, though, the question, what does it mean, really pragmatically, to seek first the kingdom of God? It sounds like a nice phrase. It sounds like something we should be doing. But what does it actually mean to seek first the kingdom of God. Well, let me share a little bit about what it looks like for me because I don't know what your usual process is, but I got a distinct sense from my grandfather and other places growing up about how to approach life. And so the first thing you should do in my grandfather's world and in my world as to how you should approach life is you should plan really hard, step one. Uh, you should make sure you use your best kind of strategies and work it all out. And then you should work really, really hard. And if things aren't working out, you should work even harder at that. And then if things really aren't working hard, uh, working out for you, you should worry really, really hard when things don't work. And then finally, when you come to the place where there's just no way, nowhere to go, no left turn, no right turn, no way forward, no way back, then you might want to think about praying about it. That's the unconscious message that I absorbed because God helps those who plan well, work hard, and worry lots, right? <laughs> so one of the things that I'm finding challenging these days in my own walk with God, and I'm being challenged more, is 
Like at what point do I insert prayer, prayerful dependence on God into the sequence of events in my life? See, in this kind of mode of operating, prayer comes into the equation at the point like the wagoneer in Aesop's fables, when I'm stuck in the mud and I'm pushing hard and it is not going anywhere. And I'm at the end of my rope and then some wonderful Christian friend comes along and says, that's okay, Brad, when you're at the end of your rope, just let go and let God. Which I'm really not sure what they mean about that. Also a phrase not found anywhere in the Bible, by the way. But I think I know what they mean. And I think I know what they're trying to encourage me toward. And that is that if I pray in the sequence only when I've tried everything else in the best of my efforts and abilities, then that's not really seeking first God's heart and His kingdom priorities. That's actually seeking first my plans, seeking first my priorities, putting first my work ethic, and then I'm going to drag God along for the ride to bless me and help me succeed at what I've already decided I'm going to do. And here's where we run into a challenge, because like my grandfather, we often get our own definition of what it means then that God will help us. Because oftentimes we might not verbalize this, we may just live it out, but our definition really of what it means is that uh, I'm going to work really hard and then God is going to give me everything that I work hard for. That's my definition of God helping me. God is going to help those who help themselves. And again, there's an element of truth to this. So, for example, in the area of your spiritual growth and your spiritual life, God often invites us to take some very concrete steps and action and put things in place, like, for example, fasting or maybe practicing Sabbath, that where you take a 24-hour period of each week to rest in God's care for you and His provision for us. Or of regularly saying, I'm going to make a commitment to placing myself in an environment where I'm going to grow. I'm going to listen to things that are going to be helpful for me in that category. I'm going to get involved and engaged with a small group. Or I'm going to make a commitment to being regular at corporate worship so that I can actually uh, place myself in a situation where I'm going to grow. I'm going to take action. I'm going to actually work hard at that. There is work to be done. But the challenge happens is when I tip the scales just a little bit and decide that what really then is happening is based on the actions taken on my part, God is obligated to give me what I'm working hard at. So if I want to grow spiritually and I feel like it's not happening then, but I'm working really hard at it, then I think, well, this is completely useless. God should be helping me with this. I mean, I'm giving him all the stuff that he wants, isn't, aren't I? 
But see, God doesn't operate like a cosmic vending machine that when you put in the right set of change, punch the right buttons, beep, bop, beep, out comes everything you've ever wanted or needed or worked hard for. Because the other challenge that happens is that we often get just a little bit or a lot fuzzy on the difference between our wants and our needs. But thankfully, Jesus never does. In Matthew chapter 6 here, the text we read, we're reminded of Jesus' definition is, Jesus' definition of how God helps is, I will give you everything that you need. But here's the really challenging part about the seeking. When is the seeking supposed to happen? The seeking is supposed to happen first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Then, as I seek God's kingdom, my life comes into alignment with the heart and the priorities and the purpose and the plans that God is birthing. And then God's desires and my desires become more aligned so that then the things that I need, God is responsive toward. And this doesn't just apply individually. This also applies corporately to a community like Jericho. And so here at Jericho, we're on a learning journey to become a prayer-first kind of church. So when it comes to our future facility discussions, for example, every time we come into one of those meetings, we spend time praying first. And the idea itself actually was birthed in a time of committing to prayer and seeking God's help and assistance, saying, God, we don't know what we're going to do uh, as elders, as leaders. What's on your heart for us? We want to seek your heart, seek wis wise wisdom, and then act in accordance with that. First, before we have a whole bunch of plans in place and then we kind of bring it in and say, God, we got a really great idea here. You want to add a little bit of uh, Jesus juice to this and kind of supercharge it a little bit? It's a hard lesson. I find it a hard lesson for me because I'm wired up for action and activism. Like, I want to get stuff done. And, and part of that's driven by this unhealthy belief that God will help me because I'm getting stuff done. And I'm helping myself, so therefore God should be helping me and us. But that's not a pray first kind of responsiveness. And as we're going to move into a time of reflection and response, I want to suggest that there's two core issues here that come into play for me personally and I think for us as a community as well. And the first one is that this actually becomes an issue of faith and trust. This is why Jesus uses such clear images and word pictures in Matthew chapter 6. We're running around worrying about everyday life. What's, what's going on over here, God? God, wow, do I look like a person who's successful? Am I dressed in that way? What about my needs? Is this going to be met? And when I come to church, I, I have so many cares and concerns, but I don't want to really let other people in on those things because they might think that I'm weak and they might think I can't handle the hardships of daily living, so I'm just going to keep it all to myself. I'm not going to let other people in on that. I'm certainly not going to let God into those places in my life. What would God have interest in doing about that? Shouldn't I just be working on that my own self? See, that's an issue of faith and trust. Do you remember who God helps? 
God helps those who admit they need help. Those who are humble. Those who own up to their own spiritual poverty. Our friends from the addiction community have such a gift to give us here when they just say, I admit that my life has become unmanageable. Can you do that? Can I do that? That's why Matthew 6, 30 says, God cares so wonderfully about the wildflowers. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. You think that he doesn't care for you? Why do you have so little faith? See, this is an issue of faith and trust in God and in God's character. So friends, today, one of the things that God might want to remind you about is that you can rest in the certainty of God's loving care for you. You can rest completely certain in the knowledge that God cares for you. Matthew 6, 26 says, you are valuable to God. 632, your needs, every aspect of the needs, even in those hidden and secret places in your heart, are completely known to your Father in heaven. And because of that, because God cares for you, you can trust Him. Sometimes the lie that God helps those who help themselves leads us further down paths of idolatrous self-sufficiency. And we begin to believe the lies that everyone needs to take care of themselves and look out for number one. I mean, if I don't meet my needs, who's going to meet them? And the invitation that God is extending to some of you here in this place today is cease striving and know that I know. Know that I love you. Know that I care about you. Know that I am taking care of you. You are precious and valuable to God. Your needs are known to Him. Rest in His care and in His provision. Not in a lazy kind of slothful way where you just think, well, if God knows my needs, then He better get busy meeting them. I'm not going to tell Him about them. He's God. Doesn't He know everything already? But in a way where you may simply need to come to God today and say, God, I need repent. I need to say I'm sorry for acting in a way that says I don't trust you with my life. I need to say I'm sorry that I don't trust you with my finances. I'm not acting in a way that says I trust you with my finances. I'm not acting in a way that I trust you with my future. I don't trust that you are a good God who cares and loves me. If that's you today, then just spend some time before we go into our time of communion, just talking to God about that and just saying, God, I'm sorry that I've let that attitude take root in my heart. Would you just root that out? Give me a sense, again, a deep faith and trust and confidence in you. There might be another area of response that God's calling us to today. Might not be an area of faith and trust, for you might be an area of priorities. See, priorities are simply things that dominate our thoughts and dominate our calendar and dominate our spending. 
Because just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus lays out the priorities of the kingdom of God in what we often call the Beatitudes. Uh, I loved it. Earlier, just on Friday this week, author and thinker and pastor Brian Zan tweeted uh, the Beatitudes with a great question. He started the, the thread on Twitter by asking the question, how do we recognize the kingdom of God? Like, what does it look like? We use a phrase, what do we mean by that? If we're going to seek it, what are the things that we're actively seeking? And he said this, if you want to understand the priorities of the kingdom of God, like when the kingdom of God is present, just look at those beatitudes and start asking questions. Are the dispirited, are the poor in spirit welcomed? If yes, then the kingdom of God is coming. Are the sorrowful comforted? Is the kingdom of God coming? Do the meek get their fair share? If yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Are those who ache for justice being satisfied with justice? Then if yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Is mercy being multiplied? If yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Do the pure in heart see God in increasing ways? If yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Are peacemakers, are those who are working for peace being esteemed? If yes, the kingdom of God is coming. And if people are being persecuted for the sake of justice, but they're being welcomed, then yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Friends, I want to be part of a movement, all people all around the world who are, who are parts of communities that live out those kinds of priorities. I want my life and the things that occupy my time, my finances, my Twitter feed, papers you write as a student, to be saturated with those kinds of priorities, the priorities of the kingdom of God. So as we move into a time of worship and response in communion, then there's just two simple questions for us to ask ourselves. And the first one is this, is there a situation or circumstance in your life that you just need to surrender again to God's care? You just need to say, God, I've been holding this pretty tight, but again, in this place today, I, I hear you speaking to me about this. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's an area of your life that you just need again to release to God. Maybe you've been working and working and working and working at it. You've been getting nowhere. Maybe you're completely overwhelmed and that leads you to think, God must not care about this at all. Take time yet again today to simply say, God, in this situation, in this circumstance in my life, help. I can't do it on my own. I need you. And that's one of the reasons why we have a prayer team here.